Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning, church. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Yeah, I'm wrestling with a concept over the years that worship is warfare. And so I appreciate Pastor Andrew bringing that out. Worship is warfare. When we come into this place, this is not entertainment. This is corporate. Do you understand? There's, there's something about the, the Lord has called his people to come together and sing. This is unique. Yeah, it's not a concert. This is, this is worship of the one true living God. And I, and I think that worship is warfare. And Lord willing, over the, the course of my ministry, and Andrew and I will flush that out, and who knows what will happen. So in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 30, Paul says, Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, and then in verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, we uphold the law. All right, so those are two provocative statements at the end of chapter three, after he's laid out that none is righteous, no, not one. We all need Christ. There's no way that we can earn our way to heaven. He, he makes these two provocative statements. And then in four, one through eight, he deals with the faith of Abraham and David as like he calls the witnesses to the stand. He, he wants two witnesses to testify that what he's saying is true. He goes back to the pillars of the Jewish faith and says, look at what they said. And then last week in four, nine through 12, we dealt with circumcision and how God saves the circumcised, the circumcised justifies the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. We walk in the footsteps of our father, Abraham. This week we deal with the law. So Chapter 4, verses 9 through 12 is sort of elaborating on 3.30. And 4.13 through 17 elaborates on 3.31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. We uphold the law. Now he's going to expound upon the law. What do you mean we uphold the law? All right. So let's read here verse 13 through 17. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all the offspring, all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Let's pray. Father, we come before you grateful, humble, expectant, eager to hear your word, eager to respond to it in a way that honors you and glorifies you. There's only one way to respond to your word. It is humble obedience. 
humble submission. And I pray, Jesus, that you would be glorified now as we preach your word and hear it and submit to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Paul's already made it clear that circumcision, which came less than 30 years after Abraham was declared righteous, that's the whole premise here, okay? The whole premise of the Jewish faith is that Abraham was a righteous man. Everything hinges upon that. Okay, if, if Abraham was not righteous, then none of us is righteous. So Paul goes to Abraham and talks about his justification, his righteousness. How was he made righteous? By faith. Paul lays out in the, in the, in the, in the uh, verses previous to this that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So last week he makes it clear it wasn't circumcision that made him righteous, that was a ritual act that came about 30 years after Abraham was counted righteous, right with God. And so if circumcision, which came in Abraham's lifetime 30 years later, is not what justifies Abraham or anyone else for that matter, how much less the law, which came 430 years after Abraham was justified. How much less does the law have the power to justify people and make them right with God if it happened 430 years after Abraham was counted righteous? And now Paul broadens the scope not only to include Abraham's righteousness, but also God's promise to Abraham, specifically that he would be heir of the world. Now there's some confusion because there is no Old Testament statement that says exactly what Paul just said. God did promise Abraham in the covenant to give him and his offspring the land of Canaan. But the land of Canaan is not the world. He's already argued in Galatians chapter 3 He's already laid out, he's already written, Galatians 3, 16 and 29, that offspring primarily refers to Christ and the people of Christ. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So that's verse 16. So Paul, who wrote Galatians, who wrote Romans, says that the offspring of Abraham that God is referring to, God is promising, is Christ. And then watch. If you are Christ's, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So what does Paul have in mind when he says heirs of the world? I don't think he's talking about the land of Canaan. I think that's a very narrow view of what God has in mind in terms of an inheritance for the offspring of Abraham. I think he's talking about Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham, and all of those that are in Christ, and he's talking about the world at the end time. 
He's talking about eschatology. He's talking about Jesus who is going to come back and is going to take what is rightfully his, namely the whole world. And a new heaven and a new earth. And it's going to be a glorious thing. The promise did not come through the law, Paul says. It didn't come by being good. Man, we, we, here we are, chapter 4. We have another chapter to go on this justification by faith alone. Paul will not let go of this idea that we are not made right by acting right. It's like, Paul, why do you keep harping on this? Well, church history has revealed he didn't hit it enough. Because in every generation, there are people that still think that the way to be right with God is to act right, to do right. Of course, in their mind, it's always what we think is right. Because the Bible does teach that if you want to be right with God, you can be by observing the law. You just have to observe it perfectly from the moment of birth until your moment of death and never transgress against any part of the law. We're all disqualified. Right? So, so Paul hammers it over and over and over and over again. And I hope that by the time we get to the end of chapter five, that finally it, it, it sinks in deep into our hearts. I cannot make myself right with God. But praise the Lord, Jesus can. Amen? Amen? By faith, not by the law. Verse 14. For it is the, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how it's not just, it's not morally neutral to try to, to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have faith in Christ and I'm going to trust in my works. Like there's a good thing. Here's a good thing. No, when you mix these things together, it's a bad thing. It's, it's a, it voids it out. Right? It's sort of like sitting on the chair. Remember when I had the chair up here last week and I'm sitting and I'm saying I, I trust the chair and I sit on the front part of the chair, but most of my weight is on my own legs. That's what it's like to, to go to church and say, yes, Jesus, but in my heart, I am trusting in myself that somehow I can be good enough for God to love me. It voids faith. It nullifies the promise. When Paul says adherence of the law, it literally means those of the law. So we don't know exactly what Paul means, but we believe that he's referring to the circumcised Jew, the ethnic Jew, who depends upon obedience to works of the law for their right standing with God. They believe that because of what they do, they are right with God. They are of the law. They depend on the law. If it is as the ethnic Jews claimed, only those who adhere to the law that are going to be heirs, then there was no point in Abraham's faith. 
right? It's just obedience. Abraham was declared righteous by faith, and if he's declared righteous by faith, but we are declared righteous by law, then his faith was void, was futile, was empty, was nothing. And since the promise came through faith rather than through works, well, then the promise is void. Why would it be void? Because now it's based on works and not faith. And the sad reality is that none of us would ever be able to see the promise realized if it was based on works. Because we'd never get there. Paul tells us, now let me, let, me, uh, let me pause on that for a second. Let's go to verse 15. Paul tells us why the promise is as good as dead if it depends on us. He says, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now we have to be careful not to develop a doctrine based on one verse of scripture. It says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Paul's already told us in Romans 1, 18 through 32, that even those who do not have the law are guilty and will stand judged. He tells us in Romans 2, 12 through 16, that even those who do not have the written law will face the consequences of their sin. He says in Romans 5, 13, that even before the law was written, there was sin in the world. He says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So Paul is likely quoting a Roman maxim. When he says there is no, where there is no law, there is no transgression, there's a, there's a Roman maxim in Latin, it goes, nulla poena sine lege. Nulla poena sine lege. No punishment without law. That was a, that was a Latin maxim, an axiom, a, a proverb, a truth. Where there's no law, there's no punishment. So he's probably quoting, but he's not contradicting himself. That God is justified in condemning all people because all people sin. They give, they exchange the truth about God for a lie, he says in Romans 1.18. The law has one purpose. The law has one purpose. It makes it clear in this passage and in Romans 3.20, look at what it says. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. What's the purpose of the law? To give us knowledge of our sin. The purpose of the law is to show us how far we are from God's holy standard. Because if it's like, have you ever, <clears throat> you ever done the white teeth test? How do you do the white teeth test? You smile in the mirror, you look at your teeth, you think, oh, that's pretty white. They're okay. And then what, you take up a piece of pure white paper and you put it next to your mouth and it reveals to you how yellow or how white they really are. The law is the white piece of paper next to your nasty yellow teeth, sin-stained soul, okay? 
the law reveals to us how bad we really are, how far we really are from God, and how nefarious that we would take this law, that people would take this law, that is supposed to show us how much we need Jesus and how much we need grace, and they would, they would think that they can achieve it. How prideful are people to imagine that somehow that they can live up to God's holy standard of perfection, right? So the law brings wrath. That's what it does. It reveals to us, it shows us our sin. It gives the knowledge of sin. Reveals to us God's holy perfection. So it's a beautiful thing because it shows us God's beautiful perfection and how much we need rescue. And we need to find rescue, praise the Lord, right? This should be relief for everyone that has come here today thinking, how can I be good enough for God? Because the answer is you can't. So stop, it's not the way it is. It's not the answer. This is why it depends on faith, Paul says in verse 16. We need rescue because we can't make it. That's why it depends on faith, Paul says, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So Paul simultaneously rebukes the Jew who is relying on works of the law, and today the Christian or the churchgoer who relies on being good, he rebukes that person and he encourages the Gentile, the person that only trusts in Christ. So he rebukes those that are legalistic and he encourages those that say, all I have is Christ. And he's essentially saying, you feel pressure to perform? You feel pressure to conform. You feel pressure to earn it. You feel like you're not measuring up to all the religious people around you. It is they who need to fear the wrath of God, not you. You only hope in Christ? Praise the Lord, that's it, that's all it is. It's all you need. That's the only way. You're hoping in good works, salt of the earth living. You've always been a, 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 a good boy, good girl. This, this, this Jesus only is for people that are, that are way lost out there. For me, I, I'm okay, I'm a pretty good person. You need to fear. Paul says, because the law only brings wrath. It depends on faith because no matter how much we try to obey the law, you and I are never going to earn it. We're never gonna earn righteousness. Righteousness depends on faith because we'll never earn it. And it depends on faith so that it is solely of grace, okay? There's another sola. I've introduced to you sola fide. 
right? Which is Martin Luther's, there's five solas, sola fide, faith alone, and now here is grace alone, sola gratia, grace alone. It, it, it must depend on faith so that it may be by grace. Did I say grace twice in that? It sounded like it did. I said it right? Depends on faith so that it may rest on grace. So what is grace? Some people don't quite understand what grace is. Grace is receiving what you did not earn. Mercy is not receiving what you did earn. When you, when you don't punish a child who has who has acted out and deserves punishment, you're showing mercy. Unless, of course, you do that habitually and then you're showing you don't love them. But in, in this narrow situation, you say, you know what, you were wrong, but I'm not gonna punish you, you're showing mercy. They do wrong and you give them a lollipop, now you're maybe just encouraging bad behavior, but that's grace, right? That's grace, they're getting what they did not earn. Grace is the extension of God's goodness and favor and blessing and eternal life and forgiveness and righteousness and heaven and relationship with your creator that you could not earn. You could never warrant and you could never achieve. Now, there's another reason. It depends on grace or so that it may rest. It depends on faith so that it may rest on grace. It's sola gratia. It's sola fide because it's sola gratia. It's a faith alone so that by grace alone, God's grace alone. But there's another purpose. That it may be guaranteed to all his offspring, Paul says. Now the only way to ensure that all the offspring of Abraham will inherit the promise is that God decides to give it to them irrespective of whether they deserve it or not. That's the only way to guarantee to all the offspring of Abraham is that God decides I'm going to give it to them even if they don't earn it. And to be clear, Paul's not just talking about the Jews when he says his offspring. He's over and over driving this point home. It's not just being born of Abraham, but what? Everyone who shares the faith of Abraham. That's what he says. Everyone who shares the faith of Abraham is the offspring of Abraham. He is the father of us all, namely those who believe. And specifically, those who believe like Abraham did, that God is able to do what God promised to do. Once again, we read of the adherent of the law in verse 16. Paul undoubtedly has in mind the great expansion of the kingdom of God beyond the ethnic descendants of Abraham, so that both Jew and Gentile alike, by faith, are included in the promise of God. 
right standing, and inheritance of the world. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. So Paul quotes Genesis 17, 5, no longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be, excuse me, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now, when did this happen? Genesis 17, Abraham is, let's see if anyone was paying attention in the last two weeks. In Genesis 17, Abraham was how old? 99. And in that same chapter, so he's 99, and he has no descendants with his wife Sarah. 99. She's 90. He has no offspring with her. He has an, an act of lack of faith where he has a child with Hagar, Ishmael, but he, the promise is not through Ishmael. The promise is going to come through Sarah, Abraham and Sarah. So he's 99 years old, and in that same chapter, in verses, 25, uh, verses 15 through 21, God promises, promises to Sarai, who he names Sarah, that she would have a son this time next year. So let's do some deductive reasoning. If Sarah is going to have a child this time next year, how many months approximately is it going to be before she even conceives? Three to, or so months, right? In other words, she's not even pregnant. She won't even become pregnant for months. And look at how God says this in the past tense. I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. His, his first child through Sarah has not even been conceived yet. I, I want you to get the, the visual. Not even an embryo in mama's womb. And yet God promises that he's already made him the father of a multitude of nations from whom kings will rise. And before that, in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, he says, look up at the stars. And if you can count the stars in the sky, if you can count the, the dust of the earth, that's how many your offspring are gonna be. And it's already done, Abraham, before there's any evidence whatsoever, it's already done. And Abraham believed. That's faith. That's faith. Now look here. You see that dash in verse 17? If you go back to verse 16, you see the other dash. So that, that, the, the space between the dashes is sort of like a, like a let, me, let me hit pause real quick and talk about what I mean when I say offspring, and then let me pick it back up here in verse 17. So it would read like this, that is why it depends on faith 
in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring in the presence of God in whom he believed. You see that? The guarantee, the assurance, the promise is not the strength of Abraham's faith. All of Abraham's offspring are not guaranteed the inheritance because Abraham's faith was so strong, even though he clearly had a strong faith. It wasn't about Abraham's strong faith. It was about Abraham's faith in a strong God. You and I are not made right by God and guaranteed entrance into heaven because our faith is strong. In fact, how does Jesus, what, what does he relate mountain moving faith to? A mustard seed, right? Which I don't know what a mustard seed looks like. I don't have one, but a poppy seed is pretty small, right? He, he says just a little bit of faith is all it takes. It, it is not that you and I are guaranteed entrance into the inheritance, the kingdom of God, because we have this great, strong faith, but rather because we have this faith in a great, strong God. It is the presence of God in whom Abraham believed. This is so important because I have a feeling that there are some here today or who are listening online who imagine that if they waver, if they ever have doubts, if their faith isn't strong enough, whatever that looks like or whatever that means, that they're going to lose the promise that the promise, the assurance of their salvation resides in the strength of their faith. But this is not a sliding scale. It's binary. You either believe the gospel or you do not believe the gospel. The gospel says that there is nothing in you capable of affecting your salvation one way or the other. There's nothing in you capable of changing your standing with God. The gospel says that you need Jesus to do that. And the question is, do you believe that or not? How silly of us to imagine that I, I believe the gospel that says there's nothing good in me to earn God's favor. And Jesus gives me all of his righteousness. And at the same time, somehow I have to perform in order to keep it. That is very silly. And sometimes when you say the things out loud, it reveals how silly they really are and yet so pervasive, the thoughts. 
I can assure you that if it was up to you to keep your salvation, you would lose it. You would have already lost it a thousand times today. So relax, Christian. God's got you. It's not about you. It's about the presence of God in whom you believed. Jesus said in John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Okay? Now, is Jesus worried about the world and the wealth of the world? No. At the end of time, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus is not worried about the world and the wealth of the world. When, when Jesus says that he's given all things into his hand, what is he talking about? He's talking about his sheep. He's talking about his people. He's talking about you and me, brother and sister. God has given us into the hand of Jesus. Now watch this in, in John 10. It says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Okay? No one, if no one can snatch you out of Jesus' hand, why do you think you can snatch yourself out of Jesus' hand? No one will snatch you out of Jesus' hand, even your weak, fragile faith. Man, I, I don't know how many times I repeat to myself Paul's fragile faith. Romans 7. I do the things I don't want to do. The things I, I want to do, I don't do. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have been placed in Jesus' hands by the Father who loves the Son. And Jesus says, no one's going to snatch you out of his hand. And watch. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. That, that's just, that is, that is the, that is the, understatement of them all. The Father is greater than all. Comfort, peace, child of God. Our God is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So you've got Jesus saying, God who loves me gave you into my hand and no one can take you out of my hand. And oh, by the way, the Father's hand is around my hand and no one's gonna take you out of the Father's hand. So relax. Do you believe the gospel or you do you don't believe the gospel? It's not about how strong is your faith. The question is, do you believe? And if you believe, then you're in the hands of the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And you have the presence of God in whom you believed dwelling in your heart.
sealing you for your inheritance and your life with him forever. Right? Thank you, Paul, for not just glossing over this. For going over and over and over and over again that I am perfectly safe and secure in the hand of Jesus, in the hand of the Father. Now, I want you to know that Abraham believed God when there was absolutely zero evidence that what God promised could actually happen. Sarah's womb was dead. I don't know when women today think their womb is dead. I'm sure it happens at some point. I don't want to insult, but at some point, you just sort of say, okay, it, it, it's over. Not, but I'm certain that at 75 and at 90, we're there, right? Safe to say, her womb is dead, closed forever. Ver- Verse 17, Paul continues. This God in whom Abraham believed is he who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, I don't want to steal Pastor Matt's thunder next week. Be praying for me, my family. We're out of town. We're going on a solo camping trip, except this time it's me and my wife, so praise the Lord for that. Be praying for us. These things have been so fruitful for me, and I anticipate this can be so fruitful for us. So Pastor Matt's going to cover the next section here. I don't want to take his thunder, but it was neither Abraham's age nor the barrenness of Sarah's womb, neither his age nor her womb were hindrances to their faith. Saving faith is believing that God is able to do what he says he will do. Abraham believed that God can give life to the dead. He can give life to a dead womb. He again demonstrated this kind of faith when he took Isaac up on the mountain and he lays Isaac on the altar, his only son, through whom the promise is going to come, and he raises the knife to slaughter him, and God says, stop, you've proven your faith. You've demonstrated to me and to all the world and to the people of Wildwood, they're gonna know what faith looks like, so stop. But Abraham believed that even if he slaughtered his son, that God would give life to the dead because he knew that God promised that through Isaac, there was going to come a multitude of nations. It was faith in God's ability to give life to the dead that was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And I think that as Paul reflects on Abraham and Abraham's faith, he just erupts in benediction. I I think that this statement, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, I think that is just... That is just an expression of praise and exaltation. Behold your God, Wildwood. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence that which does not yet exist. That is our God. 
And I think that Abraham's heart just swelled as he thought about Abraham's faith and what God has done. Now, the literal rendering of that suggests that Paul is saying that God calls into existence things that do not yet exist. The way it's written in the Greek suggests that that what Paul is talking about is not so much God's creative ability, even though that's there, he created, he spoke the earth and the universe and everything came into existence, ex nihilo, out of nothing. So God's creative ability is there, but when, when we read this in the original language, it suggests that Paul is talking about God's ordaining of human history. He calls into existence thing that, things that do not yet exist. God is bringing his sovereign plan together. God is working his sovereign plan in your life. And there is nothing that surprises him. And there is nothing that is impossible for him. And when you get to that place and you realize there's no evidence that you can do what you've promised to do, but I believe anyway, you have arrived at saving faith. There is no evidence that you, a holy God, would receive me, a sinner, into your presence but I believe that you will because of what Jesus has done. You have arrived at saving faith. The reality is that our God fundamentally changes things. He changes infertility into a multitude of nations from which kings will come, from a barren womb to an everlasting lineage. He gives life to the dead. The obvious sense is Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sin, was buried, and on the third day rose again and ascended to be with the Father. He died for you. He literally died and he literally was raised back to life. That's why Abraham, we believe, is in heaven. Jesus says that Abraham's in heaven because he believes in the God who gives life to the dead. So he gives life to Jesus, but where else does he give life? How about to your dead hearts? Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were, what? Dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He gives life to Jesus. He gives life to your heart. That's the already, that's what he's already done. And if he hasn't already done that, then he's waiting to do that. He's calling you to faith, to believe the gospel. But there's something else that's coming. And what do we see here? Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
There's going to be a day, and I, it's a liter- I take this literally. I translate the Bible literally. I believe that the dead are going to come up out of the ground. They're going to be made alive by the same God who spoke the earth into existence. And they're going to be called up, and they're going to go to be with Jesus in heaven. And then those of us who are alive, Paul says, will be caught up. Do you trust in this God who gives life to the dead? He's also the God who calls into existence the things that do not yet exist. Our God makes a way where there seems to be no way. My question for you is what are you waiting on the Lord to move? There's no evidence that something's gonna happen. And you know, the difference between us and Abraham is God did not... visit us and make a promise to us. But where is the Lord asking you to trust in him and surrender to him and and submit to him? What is there to worry about? He is the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not yet exist. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign, that you are good, that you are holy, that you love us enough to show us the standard and then show us that we need Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we would put our trust fully and completely in Christ. And when we have, that we would continue to walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, you are the God who gives life to the dead, dead marriages, dead families, dead finances, dead health, dead job. You give life to the dead. Help us to trust you with all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.